Welcome to the John of All Trades Podcast, episode 94. I'm your host, John X. Thank you for joining us. Glad to have you back once again. And I'm going to make this intro quick because we've got a lot of show to get to. One of my best friends is Kyle Simmons. He is this week's guest. I refer to him as one of my favorite sparring partners because he's a guy I can talk to about anything. We met during undergrad at Colorado State, and we went through grad school together. And it was he, myself, and my wife, and we were like our own little clique. And we hung out together, and we all sort of just really hit it off. I ended up marrying Kristen, obviously. And we had a great time. And we we all enjoyed sparring with each other. We all loved chatting. We all had sort of similar appetites for the things that we studied and the things that we talked about. And that's what this week's episode is. It's a snapshot. It's a peer through the keyhole of what our friendship is like. And I would argue that even if you don't know us or don't know us well, you'll have some fun listening to this episode. We talk about a lot. We talk about the finance industry. We talk about salesmanship, the NFL, our problems with the NFL, and why Kyle is out on the NFL. He's just done. They're not getting any more of his money. We spend some time talking about our degree and the way we apply our degree and why it matters, why a liberal arts education is actually super useful. People like to give you crap about it, but there's a lot of unseen value in the way that you view the world. It helps you become a more well-rounded person and I would argue that applies to any business that you do. So think of this almost as an ad for a degree in liberal arts or in particular in communication studies. It's something that I love, something I'm very passionate about. And the applicability, I think, is not as well understood as it could be. So we hope to bring some light to that. We also spend the back half of this episode, maybe not the back half, but the last 20 minutes or so arguing about the HBO show, The Newsroom, because he really liked it. I didn't. You get a peek behind the curtain as to the types of conversations that we love to have. So, a lot of fun on this episode. It's very long. I don't really care. Maybe this episode is more for me than it is for you, but sometimes you do that. It's my show. Uh, I think you'll love it, but then again, I did this episode. I adore it. Only one plug before we get going here, and it is for the excellent Denver podcast, Changing Denver. You should check them out at changingdenver.com. They have a new episode up went up this Monday, and it's all about Capitol Hill. So, to tell you a little bit more about Changing Denver, here's the host, Paul Caroli. Hi, my name is Paul Caroli, and I host a podcast called Changing Denver. It's a monthly show about our city's physical spaces, how we make them, and how they make us. But it's so much more than that. It's the conversations, ideas, and stories that define Denver's perpetual state of flux. Find more from our team at changingdenver.com and join the conversation on Twitter at Changing Denver. Denver's changing. We can help. I had the pleasure of meeting Paul recently. He's a great dude. He puts on a great show. And I'm happy to feature his work here on the John of All Trades podcast. Let's get to episode 94. It's with Kyle Simmons. He works in the finance industry. We talk a little bit about that. We also talk about our degree, and we talk about lots of things across pop culture and across culture in general. So, episode 94, Kyle Simmons, starts right now. Hey, 
it took him a little while. So we got here and we, we basically adopted two cats and he's bred to be a pointer and he had never really had that interaction. Okay. And he, he spent two or three months just continually pointing and as a result, losing sleep and losing weight because he would just do that. He just point at the cats. He just point at them. You mean like Pluto? Like, yeah, really? And like the tail would, the tail stick straight back. And maybe one leg comes up, maybe it doesn't, it just depends. Oh my god, so like, you watch Mickey Mouse Clubhouse, right? Mm-hmm. Or have. Absolutely. And so when Pluto does that, I mean, that's based in reality? Yeah. Is it, is it as hilarious as it sounds in my head? It, it isn't quite as outlandish as cartoonish, right? Everything doesn't just become rigid. <laughs> right. But it's slowly, it's, it's a much more slow motion version of Pluto. <laughs> And, and. Yeah, we're like, Pluto has the comic, like, boing sound with it. Right. <laughs> um, this one's more of a, <laughs> Awesome. Did he finally get over it? Did you guys have to do something? Like. It, it was just a matter of, of becoming comfortable. Like, this is just his world now. This is the life that he lives in. And he, they became part of the group. And every once in a while, he'll still, like, they come around the corner and startle him and he'll pop up, <laughs> look right at him. And point. Wow. And then if they get around the corner, he'll nip at him a little bit. It's a, it's a love hate relationship. They don't, they don't, they don't fight, but they play fight. Okay. They don't like each other, but uh, they don't hate each other. It took him a little bit, but he's, he's good now. So, I mean, it sounds like a sibling relationship. For sure. More than anything For else. For sure. Yeah. yeah. He, he didn't know, he didn't know what it was like to, to not be the only child. And, and these things came around and took a lot of attention away from him. Okay. And how long did you live in Utah? We were in Utah seven years. We got there the summer of 07 and left. Wow. 15, so I guess almost eight, almost eight years. Jeez. And how was your time there? It was interesting. Yeah. For all the reasons you can think of. And then, like uh, the overt ones, like, right. The, 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 the culture there is just different. And I think a lot of people assume things about that. And right. I spent a lot of time, I think fighting people on that, right? <laughs> it's not, it's not that different. And then living it, watching the political process, watching the enforcement of rules okay. or the lack of enforcement of other rules. Uh, you start to realize that, you know, stereotypes are stereotypes for a reason. And, and right. while it's different than I think people recognize on the surface, at the at the end of the day, it boils down to what you what you expect of it. Okay, because one thing I was gonna say was, uh, and I've told you this before, but if there was like a movie title to your social media feed, <laughs> it would be "Watch Kyle Get Increasingly Liberal in a Very Oppressive Religious and Conservative Society." I, that so I I agree with the the your read on it. Yeah, based on what you share. My defense, and I have no problem being the liberal. Yeah, no. Especially in that world. So I had this conversation the other day, and I think I've mentioned this to you before. I see myself as being inherently progressive, mm-hmm. which by default is liberal, right? Because we live in a world where progressive is everything left of right. Everything. Yeah, so the okay. right exists in this static universe, and everything else is progressive. So by default, you become this liberal bastion when you live in that static right. Okay. And then you're constantly reminded of just how static the right is. And your argument is, let's, let's move forward, folks. Come right. on, just a little bit. For, like, I'm not for the betterment for a of lot. Us all, right? Let's just keep growing. Yeah. And, and then over time, you turn into this 
leftist. <laughs> right. Like I don't, I don't, I, so I, I get it, but I also don't see myself as being like far leaning left. I no, just see myself not... as being progressive, which is red, especially by the red as being left. Right. You're not getting pepper sprayed on the streets of Seattle protesting <laughs> capitalism. Right. You work in the finance industry for God's sake. Right. So yeah, I mean, I get it. And I, I'm struck by the way you couch it because it's very similar to my take on – I get super annoyed when people pick on millennials. Right. And it's not to say that millennials are right or that they're the best generation. No generation is objectively the best generation. We're, we're all products in which we were brought up and people want to heap just a ton of criticism on millennials for things that aren't their fault. Right. And my feeling is – Whatever they're doing is right for them. And it's important to be on the side of youth because if you're not, you're on the side of death. The way you're describing your sort of political stance is how can we best move forward sort of irrespective of the actual political ideology involved, right? Right. It's, it's almost like how do we move forward and be better than we were yesterday? Right. Is that what you're describing? Right. How do we, how do we take what we have in front of us? And build on it, build upon right. it. And I think your your example of millennials is right. Every every generation looks down on the next generation since, the, since Plato. Right. It, it always happens. And the reality is, through no fault of their own, they just right. grew up in different times. Right. We're going to spend you and I in the next ten, fifteen years. We're going to start talking about how high school looked different for us because right. we had a computer lab and. You know, computers were just becoming a thing, and our kids are going to have grown up only ever having access to computers. Right. That's not our kids' fault. That's just the world that they live in. So the fact that they're connected digitally is is just where we are. So we are where we are. How do we grow from that? How yeah, do we build on that? I agree with you because like people will say things like, um, "Well, back in my day, it was either much harder or it was you know it was much better or whatever," and you're looking at this shit the wrong way, in my opinion. It's not better or worse. It's just different. Yeah. Like you, you survive based on what surrounds you and that's all anyone can do. And whether or not your challenges were objectively harder, I think that's the wrong question to ask, but it's like, how are we approaching the problems that we have and how are we equipping people to solve them the best that they can? Right. So I don't know, man, it's weird, but, uh, this is the type of conversation I love having with you and I'm so happy that you live back in Denver. Yeah. <clears throat> so Kyle Simmons is when did we meet? That was in undergrad, right? At some so point. We met I want to say junior year. Yeah, that sounds right. We were in some we, upper level speech class. And then we pretty much spent senior year together. Like we basically took the same courses. <laughs> right, that's weird. And then decided on grad school together. Like I was obviously we both made individual choices, but right. it, it kind of came to us together and we we talked it through with each other and I'm sure yeah. you know you you talked with your family and I did talked with my family but Some, yeah. we spent a lot of time at the end of uh, undergrad together. Well, it was funny. You were a little bit ahead of me on that because I remember you brought up grad school. You asked me if I was thinking about it, and I said that I was. And my parents had told me for a variety of reasons that they weren't going to pay for it. Yeah. And I go, all right. And I'm like, and I'm not ready to get a job at that point. Yeah. Not in any way. Uh, and I look back on myself at that age now, and I'm like, God, yeah, you so weren't ready. That was a good call. And you told me you're like, you teach public speaking, they they pay for your tuition, they give you a stipend. I go, whoa, no way. I'm like, well, I'm good at school. Yeah. And I say this a lot. Like, I, I fancy myself a smart guy. Sure. But there's the difference between being smart and being good at school. 
I mean, I, I think I'm pretty good at both, but I was definitely really good at school too. Yeah. So I'm like, I can do more school. Like that's, that's not a thing. I got to take a standardized test. Great. I'm great at tests. Yeah. So yeah, we, we ended up in that program. We went straight through. I think we were kind of the exception in our class in terms of going straight through. As far as going from like we just undergrad we, to we graduate. graduated in the spring and we started again in the fall. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know that there was anybody else. I don't know that I've ever thought about that. Yeah, I don't either. I mean, I, I can think of the obvious examples of people who weren't. Right. But, uh, you know, as far as people who were, maybe Nicole, maybe Sam. Nicole and Joey and Sam, now that I think of it, they were all, at least I'd say, with, with, within a year. Yeah. Pretty close. And uh, Kristen was a year or two. She was out for only a year, I think. Okay. Or maybe two years. Yeah, it was a year or two. Okay. But, yeah, I mean, I... <laughs> I just, I plowed right through. Yeah. And I think what we found is, especially in that program, we tended to agree more than we disagreed. Like right. when, scholastically, right? Right. But in terms of issues of culture, we tended to disagree a lot. Yeah. I, w- I would say, as soon as you said that, my first thought was we tend to disagree with each other as a matter of principle. <laughs> and I, I was going to say as a matter of taste. Well, but. I think I, fair, right? I think we, we obviously are different people, but I also feel like you and I recognize for us, the value of a conversation comes from the dialogue. Right. So you may take sides of an argument that you don't wholly believe in. Right. It's like when it, I defend the Beatles it adds to the conversation, just like I'm going to take a, a position that I don't fully commit to. But because I know it's going to advance our conversation and maybe make us more informed people in the end. Hey, here's, right. here's progressivism coming back into our right. culture conversation. Right. Here's another angle to think about it from is what you're describing. Right. That makes sense. And I know there are times where we've taken it too far. I think in particular about the great D- Dakota Fanning debate of 04. Yep. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to blame that one on a lot, a lot of beer and a lot, <laughs> a lot of calzone. Yeah, that was, I remember by the end of it, we, we had totally worn out poor Jason. Yeah. And he, like, we started. Didn't on, he, didn't he just leave? He got up and walked home, I think. <laughs> I don't remember. I think that's what he did. Like, we're, he was just gone and we were like, huh. We must have been at pitchers or something. Yeah, we were. Good God. Um, but yeah, I, I had a real distaste for her for some reason. And you thought she was, like, really good. And I can't, like, thinking back on it now, like, obviously that's the go-to. Right. I mentioned to my wife I was coming here today, and she was like, I'm sure you're going to talk about Dakota Fanning. So, there you go. I haven't seen anything she's been in, in like, probably since that time. Though. Right. Well, and so I'm thinking about it, and I, I genuinely don't know why I cared enough. And I think it's because... We, we, when we get together, we, we tend to be more contrarian than maybe we (laughs) normally are because we enjoy it. We get, we, we get something out of the long-term discussion. Right. Regardless of content. Right. And, and that's why, that's why I refer to you as my favorite sparring partner. Right. Because it's, it's almost like there was one night where I, I think I was working for the energy drink and you were back in town and we met somewhere down south. Yeah, we, that was we Fox like and a, Hound. Oh, Fox and Hound? Okay. They had those huge beer things with the. Oh, the big tower with the, the lever, tap on the bottom? And then our tap broke and was just like spilling beer. Oh. Do you remember that? Not really. I was pretty drunk that night. No, well, I remember, <laughs> uh, because I wasn't, because I was really, really unhappy working for that energy drink. Yeah. But you started talking to me about, you had some ideological problem with me working for this company and i don't remember exactly what it was but at various points like you kept you kept coming in at me from different angles of like the same point yeah i had no problem talking about it i was happy to talk about it 
And I sort of played it back at you, you know, Academia, Ivory Tower, that like the whole song and dance. And what was funny is your wife and my wife and I think your brother and a few others kept trying to interject and like change the conversation. Yeah. And I thought, I don't, I thought they thought that they were bored or something. And I can't remember, but I came to realize they thought they were rescuing me. Yeah. Like from you. Yeah. And I go, uh, no, like this is, this is what we do. This is kind of fun. I, I, and I think that's why we will get into it. Like I, I remember the argument. Yeah. And I'm going to say argument because that's what other people see it as. Right. I think it's genuinely a discussion, right? At the end of the day, you and I don't remember what it was about. It was about the energy drink. I'm sure it was about advertising and how we choose to promote material. Yeah, it had something to do with – I remember the words commodification coming up. Um, And yeah, yeah, I can't – it's funny. Yeah, it totally escapes me. I remember not being annoyed by it though. But I remember having fun. Like, so, but, but I think because a lot of people want to avoid conflict and you and I kind of get after it when, when we get going, we're both very passionate and animated and, you know, we like to drive our points home. I think a lot right. of people see that as being aggressive. Right. But you and, and I don't read it as aggressive. So I think you and I live in a vacuum when we, when we have conversations and other people feel like they're, they right. need to, step in and, and right, but calm here, things down. So here's the difference, though. There are people who will just be the fly in the ointment to be the fly in the ointment. Right. And just to almost be a dick and get a rise out of people, that's never my goal, and I've never read that as your goal. Yeah, I, I, mean, the, I would agree. The, the thing for me is, no matter what we're talking about, I always know that we like each other. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I think some people are missing that. I, I think the debates are really healthy. I think it's just fun. And that's, I think that's at the end of the day, again, I, I think a lot of the times we have conversations, the content isn't relevant. Obviously, I think, again, we both fancy ourselves to be <clears throat> intelligent, so we right. like having conversations. But going back to the, the political side of things, my, my goal in having those conversations isn't to change your mind. Right. It's to both enlighten you and enlighten me with new information that maybe we didn't bring to the table when we started the conversation. Sure. Right. Very rarely. I mean, think in your whole entire life, how many times have you had a conversation with somebody and you walked away and you were just, holy shit, I was wrong <laughs> about everything and my whole world is different. <laughs> it's probably never happened. Uh, like maybe once you had that moment. Yeah. I mean, that, that that's a fairly seminal moment when it happens, but I might be equating this incorrectly, but... I do walk away going, holy shit, I never considered that from that angle. And, right. na- and now I see it with much more nuance. Like, it, fundamentally, it doesn't change my action, but I understand it better. It shifts your perspective. Yeah. Right? You're, you're not, you're not wholly different. Your position isn't wholly different. Right. But maybe you have an appreciation for something you didn't before. And I think in most conversations, regardless of the content, that's the goal. Right. To be more informed, to be more educated, to have a more thorough, understanding of the conversation right and then have it again later with someone else <laughs> yeah that's a good point you know i i think back we used to send facebook messages to each other and we would kind of argue about bill simmons yeah for a long time I, i'm happy with what bill simmons creates in terms of like the 30 for 30 series and mm-hmm. grantland like i think he's got a great eye for talent but i think sometimes he plays to his worst instincts and that frustrates me and the fact that he's still making some of the same tired jokes about like college and he's like 22,000 at the time. It's like, dude, you're fucking 45. Yeah. Like, give me a break here with this. 
you got to freshen it up a little bit or don't do it anymore. Yeah. Um, and all this talk about gambling and about like the guest Alliance podcast with cousin Sal, that to me is like the worst thing ever produced on the internet. <clears throat> wow. There's, I, a, there's a lot of bad <laughs> stuff on the internet. I, from someone I respect. Right. Oh, right. Let, let, let me put that out there. And I, and okay? I think your read is fair and we, we, we've disagreed on the topic of Bill Simmons for a long time. Um, but I, I let me put this out there too. I really loathe cousin Sal. So uh, fair. And, and here's what, here's, here's my read. And I think I've come closer to where you're at in the last couple of years. Obviously, I'm still gonna, I'm still gonna support Bill Simmons over ESPN. The oh, way yeah. That whole thing went, oh, out, went down. But in terms of, in terms of what he produces, the, what he puts out there, I think he ended up, what ended up making him successful, he ran with that. Yeah. And that was fine for a while, but it'd be like you and me, like, you know, talking about high school. We've been out of high school for longer right, right. than it took us to get to high school. So, well, it's like at, we don't talk about point, Dakota Fanning anymore, right? Yeah, it, it, it's old news. So, so you change, you change your game, right? You, you freshen your your material up. Yeah, you and pivot. I think he never did that. And and I think the best way to read Cousin Sal is he was easy. Hmm. He Bill Simmons didn't have to do anything. He had Cousin Sal. We knew Cousin Sal because he referenced him in his writing for the last 10, 15 years. Right, right. And all of a sudden, he just showed up, and all they had to do was guess the lines. Yeah, basically fart on a snare there's, drum. There's, like, there's no expertise in this. There's no. I mean, they fancy themselves experts because they right. follow sports, but you and and there are a guess of the d- lines, too, <laughs> and be just as successful. Right. I mean, and they're... They strike me as a couple of degenerate gamblers. Right. You know, not to the, not to the level of like poor Norm McDonald or something. Right. But, you know, that, that stands. And the point you're making is one I read, if you've ever read Brett Michaels' book, which I don't know that you ever uh, would, nope. lead singer of Poison, he said you keep writing the same song until it stops going number one. And at, okay. at, which I don't know that a lot of artists would agree with that. I th- I think the offspring would or the offscreen, the offscreen as, yeah. as, as we know them from grad school. Indeed. At some point, the Bill Simmons writing song stopped going number one for me. Sure. And I think it happened earlier for me than it did for you. Yeah. Which, like, I saw it happening, so I'm like, how can Kyle not see this? And so, I, for whatever reason, that that just bugged me. So I need, like, I almost needed you to know that. I think one of the reasons I held on to him for so long was he represented about sports writing what I wish more people would do, which is just write about your thoughts and your feelings and your mm. position. And he obviously, he has his own writing style. He has his own interests. Right. Um, you know, he brings pop culture into it, which obviously is appealing to me. But all too often we just, we lord these, these athletes as being you know, these bastions of humanity. Right. And so we just pander to them or to the, to the teams or to the owners. And Bill Simmons, for the most part, didn't do that. Well, and towards the end of his run, he was one of the only people really sticking it to Goodell. Yeah. Like during the whole, the, the stupid, like deflate gate thing and the way he handled Ray Rice and any number of things. I, I mean, I find Roger Goodell to be very, very objectionable. Yeah. Uh, as a person and the NFL as an institution as well. And that's one of the things that we've talked about recently that's been of particular interest to me because I've always known you as a pretty big NFL fan. Yeah. And like I, I like the NFL. I'm usually good for about, uh, three quarters of a game on Sunday and I cannot watch a game I don't care about. Like that's, yeah. I, I have to have a, a vested interest in yeah. it. As a Broncos fan, this was a great year for me. Sure. And so I got much more enjoyment out of this year's NFL than I have previously. 
But otherwise, I'm like, okay, this is a corrupt institution doing a product that I feel sort of mediocre about. So I have no problem just beating the holy living shit out of Roger Goodell because culturally, I think the NFL represents something very important. And in my estimation, there's been a dereliction of duty. Now, you asked me recently, and I'm going to kick this to you in a second because this is more than I usually talk on a podcast, sure. but suppose I should have expected that with you coming over. Sure. <laughs> Put your gloves on. <laughs> but uh, you asked me when I sort of had that moment with the NFL, and it was in 2005, and it was, oh. o- it was opening weekend. The Broncos were playing the oh, Bills, yeah. and what happened was it was like the opening kickoff and Kevin Everett just went for a tackle. It, it wasn't it wasn't a big hit, it wasn't a highlight reel thing, it was just this sort of standard thing. And Gus Johnson was the announcer, who is normally very good mm-hmm. and, and a good announcer. But he put on his serious voice. I call it as a wrestling fan the Owen Hart voice. Okay. Where where people go, you know, fans, this is not what we you know, we we hope he's okay and all that. Literally, like, five minutes later, there was a big hit, and fucking Gus Johnson was creaming in his jeans over it and just exploded with orgiastic glee. And I go, do we not have perspective of what happened five freaking minutes ago? And I go, okay, you know what? This is bullshit. Like, on an institutional level, this is a problem for me because there's no recognition of that. And that's where I started to sort of tune out, and that's where I started to go, mm, you know what, maybe this isn't exactly for me. And, which is odd, because I was fully watching UFC at the time. Yeah. But the thing is, you know what you're getting. You're dropping two guys inside a cage right. and, and letting them fight each other. The NFL, I thought, was being disingenuous. Agreed. And And it was that disconnect that really turned me off. It's like, okay, you either own this or you don't. And if you do, you need to take better care of your employees. It, it was it was like the most explicit example of out of sight, out of mind. Like we think right. about that all the time, right? And and with with all the concussion conversation, it's really easy to distance yourself because it's not tangible, it's not explicit. You can't see it most of the time, and so you forget about it. And then on days that aren't Sunday, you maybe maybe have conversations about it. Mm. So in this case, Everett went down, obviously. It was. I, I remember watching the game as well, and you had that moment, and then he gets carted off the field. They play the game as usual, which is always hard, right? Any sport, hockey, there's a big sure. hit, a player goes down, uh, you know, whatever happens. But yeah, he's he's back. He's in the training room. You know, maybe he's being taken to the hospital at that point. In Gus Johnson's world, he might as well not exist, mm-hmm. right? I, I I agree with you. And I, he's the surrogate for the viewer. I mean, he is the conduit. But, I mean, he is calling the action. He is describing it to you. So, in a lot of ways, announcers are you, which is why we are annoyed by them so much. Right. You know, it's like, this is not how I would feel about this. Do better, Joe Buck. Or whatever, (laughs) right? (laughs) He, so, going back to, because, to to Gus Johnson, or Joe Buck for that matter, like, their job, whether we want to admit it or not, is to sell the game. Mm-hmm. We we usually don't want to admit it, but they're selling the game for us, which is why Gus Johnson. I'm going to take the Bill Simmons approach. Gus Johnson to me is one of the best announcers out there. He always gets the crappy game. Maybe, maybe not in soccer though. Maybe not. I, I heard he didn't do very well no, in soccer. He, he, no, he but basketball, basketball and football, football right. especially. He like he gets it and he takes the moments that are supposed to be amazing, where you jump off the couch and he v- verbally reflects your physical reaction. Like yeah. He does that better than anybody I've ever heard. Okay. But the reality is he's a salesman. 
Right. And he's going to sell his product however he needs to sell the product, right? Because at the end of the day, Gus Jensen's got to get paid. The NFL's got to get paid. Yeah. Who's going to be doing the paying? You and me, because we're watching commercials. Right, right. And buying Bud Light. Yeah, or, you know, buying jerseys or right. buying tickets or whatever. Right. Yeah, I get you. Which I'm out. I'm done. You're done? I, are are I you made, completely done? So I've I've made a commitment, and, you know, just like New Year's resolutions, I can't promise it's going to last. But right. I... I since since January of this year, I'm not completely. I can't be completely done with the NFL. I want to be, but I can't. But I I made a commitment. I'm not buying tickets. <laughs> like Brokeback Mountain. I'm not buying. I, I can't quit you. <laughs> I NFL. wish I knew how to quit you. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm not. I'm not putting my money on the line right now. Okay. My tangible money. So right. Full disclosure to anybody who was interested. I'm a Bengals fan. I'll watch the Bengals if they happen to be the local game. Mm-hmm. But historically, for the last six, seven, eight years, I've had DirecTV Sunday Ticket. I could watch every game that I wanted to. I'm out on Sunday Ticket, not paying for it this year. What does that cost, by the way? So it's like 300 bucks a year. Okay. Now it's if you want a red zone, which I also like. Going back to your, I can't get into into a game. Sure. I don't have a vested interest. Red zone makes it a little bit more exciting in that I can turn on the the Jacksonville Jaguars Cleveland Browns game because uh, <laughs> someone's getting ready first, to score or first something. First in right? goal, yeah. And there's a goal line stand. You know that's interesting. Who cares that it was the Browns and the Jaguars? That's that's interesting to watch. Yeah. Um. So it's like three hundred bucks. Okay. And it, the the justification I used in in paying that money was we used to go out to the sports bar. And watch the game because we couldn't, you know, the Bengals are rarely on locally <laughs> right. in Denver. So we go to the sports bar and we're dropping 20, 30 bucks a game uh-huh. on food and drinks and, and watching the game. Well, you know, do that 16 times a season. That's a lot of money. Yeah. So I can do that all from my home. Don't you mean 17 times a season? When the Bengals go out in the first round. Oh, well, there, so, <laughs> in, to be fair, to be fair, those games are all national. So I can oh, watch yeah, that's that game true. from my, from my house. Okay. That, that, and, and I do, that way I can cry myself to sleep in the comfort of my home and yeah, nobody perfect. in public has to see that. Sorry, cheap shot there. Yeah, that was, I mean, it, it was well deserved. I, well, I mean. To, so, so to be fair to the Bengals, I try to be as objection or as as objective as possible. I get that I that, that's not I can't sure. be completely it's objective your team, yeah. uh, because it's my team. They really have been unlucky in terms of team health in January, ah. and that's not an excuse. Everybody's hurt at that point, but this year we had the best team we've ever had, probably. Right, and our quarterback broke his thumb on his throwing hand. <laughs> Turns out. You kind of need a quarterback, especially in January. And as great as AJ McCarron was, and as great as he no doubt will be, mm-hmm. you know, that that pretty much decimated our team. The yeah. last few years, we were without our top receivers, without our top running backs. Those are all excuses, well, sure. Yeah, but- yeah, well, it's a quarterback league, though. I mean, so, you know, that's huge. But you're out now. I'm out. So what happened? So... It's been a long time coming. A lot of things you've talked about, the conversations about the concussions, the the sense of of moral guilt I feel in watching the game has always been there. Mm. Right? Always the last ten years, ten or so years, not enough to make me stop. So I've always had this, you know, I'll watch it, and on days that aren't Sunday, I'll really care about the player health. Okay, and that always felt disingenuous, but it always was trumped by, you know, the other people that I was around who were also watching, who were also paying attention to the game. Yeah, because it's fun. 
it is it's it's communal it's social right everyone talks about it you know everyone's got their own team you give each other shit it's it's part and parcel to being at work on mondays right so and, it, and and the fall can suck too right. i mean like there are elements of the fall that are terrible lots of elements of fall are great some of it sucks and so if you have that to look forward to on sundays in particular it makes the weather getting colder that much more bearable because right. you have an event every single week and it's only once a week. Right. You know, whereas with baseball, it's Which like, is, yeah, sorry. One we, of the appeals of football exactly. is it's once a week. I don't have to commit six to seven nights of the week right. to my football team. I can do it Sundays and be done with it. Right. Wash yeah. my hands of it. I got you. Um, so a long time I've been hesitant about the league. I, I couldn't really justify why I liked it as much as I did knowing what was happening in the background. Um, knowing that the owners were taking advantage of the players wherever they could. Yeah. So I always felt a little bit sour about it. Part of this is, I'm sure, being a Bengals fan, like you can only s- handle so much suffering. Hey, I'm a Cubs fan, man. So. Yeah, so you, you get it. Like it's, it, uh, as much as jokes like yours earlier, I, I don't mind. <clears throat> like at some point they add up and you're just like, I get it. You're like, I've invested so much in this for what return? But I'm, let me take a step back and say, I have a hard time with sports because we only see sports as being successful if you win a championship. Hmm. And I would argue that that's not why we watch sports, right? You don't watch 162 baseball games. You don't watch 18 football games. You don't watch 82 basketball or hockey games and only enjoy that because of the championship. Yeah, that's fair. So football is the easier example because it's shorter. So 16 weeks, I'm committing to this team. You know what? The Bengals have been a lot of fun to watch. For the last five years, they won more games than they've lost. They're perpetually the underdog, right. even though they've got a, a very good squad in the last few years. And I feel better for those four months of fall when maybe right. the weather's not that great. I, I've enjoyed myself. All right. Has it ended the way that I wanted to? No. Right. But you know what? Thirty-one other teams were, were were in the same boat that the Bengals were. Well, okay. Let me let me put it to you this way then. I know why I play Powerball. And I, I only play when it goes above 250 million. Okay. And the reason is if the jackpot exceeds the odds, that's my trigger to at least okay. buy a ticket. I know what I'm buying. I, what I buy is the, the five minutes, the 10 minutes, the 30 minutes of fantasy that I get out of thinking about what I would do if I would, if I would win. Yeah. That's enjoyable. Like just on its own, just having that. And when I lose, because I always lose. Yeah. With the, with the huge like what was it like billion dollar one that mm-hmm. just happened? Yeah. Um I won 4 bucks from it. Hey. I still haven't turned it in, so it's probably expired by now. So you won nothing. <laughs> yeah. But you know, that's that's kind of that's fine. But when I don't win, I don't go, "Well, that was a waste of money." Like, no, I got exactly what I paid for. Yeah. So what you're describing is in an NFL season, there will be moments that are worth your investment where you go Hey, that was fun. That was a good win. That was a great play. That was, it was fun watching AJ Green or whoever, right? That, that actually makes sense to me. And that, but the thing is though, you're still watching with the hope. And part of what you get is like, you hope for the ultimate payoff. You always hope for that. Yeah. So I'm not, I'm not disillusioned to say that just because I'm having fun doesn't mean I also am not worried about them winning the championship. Like obviously I want them to win the Super Bowl. Yeah. I want them to win every year. And, and this year was particularly difficult. Yeah, I guess. So you. the build up, right? We drew the Steelers in the first round. All we needed was Ryan Fitzpatrick to throw a touchdown pass in the last game of the season and the Steelers wouldn't have made the playoffs. <laughs> but instead we drew our hated rivals who wiped the floor with us 
in the first round of the playoffs where we historically lose since 1990. <laughs> like, the whole, it, it literally built up like a movie. You're right, yeah. The whole thing, you know, magical season comes down to this game to, to prove that they're legit. Right. And it just had, it had to be the Steelers. Right. And then the game itself was, a roller coaster of emotions. The Steelers were really not that good. The Bengals again without their starting quarterback. Neither team could really get anything going. And with no really no time left in the game, the Bengals had the lead, intercepted the Steelers, and basically had to run out the clock and fumbled on the next play. <laughs> and then the Steelers drove down inevitably and I assume kicked a field goal at the end. I say I assume because I walked out of the house with 18 seconds left and went for a two-hour walk. Yeah, okay. it was it was 11 degrees outside. Wait, is this is this what ended your fandom? Yeah, but not because. So this is where you're you're going to listen to me, and I'm a conspiracy theorist, and I think that everybody's out to get the Bengals. So the NFL is is out to make a profit. Okay. We've known that all along. We like to ignore that because we want to think that every one of our teams has an equal chance to win. Every game. Okay. And I think for the most part, they do. I don't think the NFL is out there, like, forcing referees to throw. I don't think they're fixing games. Okay. So, like, to put it in geeks who drink parlance, the quiz is not fixed most times. Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. Just the way that the game played out, the touchdown pass that the Steelers, the one touch, the only touchdown the Steelers got in the game shouldn't have been a touchdown. I say that as a, as a fan of the Bengals. Okay. There's my bias. I said as a fan of the NFL, just based on the way that the rules are written, it should have been a touchdown. And the NFL has since come out and said, hey, we fucked up. Okay. That shouldn't have been a touchdown. Okay. So the only seven-point score they put on the board the whole night shouldn't have counted. Okay. In a game where they won by two. The hit on Giovanni Bernard that should have been illegal has since been declared illegal. Okay. It caused us a, a long, sustained drive. We fumbled, turned the ball over. Pittsburgh went the other way. And then obviously at the very end of the game, our team got two personal foul, personal foul penalties sent the, the Steelers onto the next round, right? Okay. Um, our, our player got a personal foul for jawing with the coaches. Their coach, Joey Porter, CSU grad, Mm -hmm. was on the field yelling at players he shouldn't have been on the field. Okay. So the NFL has also come out and said, yep, sorry. He shouldn't have been able to do that. That should have been a foul, and then they should have they should have offset. Okay. So the the league basically gave the Steelers seven points, a turnover that led to points and took away points, and led to the game winning field goal. He kicked he kicked a thirty eight yard field goal. Okay. It with eighteen seconds left, which is not to say the NFL necessarily fixed the game. <laughs> okay. I feel there's enough evidence to say that maybe there was some vested interest in sending the Steelers for the next round than the Bengals. But on top of all the things that I was already feeling about the NFL, okay, I already wanted a reason to be out. I couldn't help but feel like maybe the game was fixed. Okay. That there was a vested interest in sending a team through. and Like a much more marquee team? Right. So the Steelers in the second round are going to draw a lot more viewers than the Bengals. Turns out, viewers pay the bills. Okay. So that's, that's right. I get that I'm the conspiracy theorist. Right. I get that I'm probably even wrong. Right. I, but I, there was enough in my mind, enough evidence to feel like I was being disenfranchised by the league. Okay. For rooting for a specific team that I already wanted a reason to be out. 
And at the very least, I need a reason to care less. Like yeah. I can't, I can't be so invested that I went for a two hour walk in 11 degree weather. <laughs> it, was, it was cold. Right. And I, like, I didn't know what else to do. Like I, I didn't <laughs> want to go to bed. I didn't want to, I didn't want to talk to anybody. I didn't want anybody to console me. Like yeah. I, I just wanted to be mad and alone and frustrated. Right. And so I went for a walk. I probably didn't need to do that. <laughs> so what can I do to help that side of me? I get you. And, and to take a step back, I, and I'm, I've been fine with it so far. Talk well, to me in September. Okay. It's funny because I worry you, you are suffering from a little bit of confirmation bias here in that, you know, you, you are looking for the league to screw your team. Maybe. And you're finding it. Maybe. So that's, that's in the realm of possibility. I get it. Which is a way of, of me saying, I think the league is dumb enough to have made those mistakes unintentionally. But given what we know about what happened in the NBA with Tim Donaghy, yeah. I would say you're not totally far-fetched. Right. Granted, I didn't watch that game. I don't think at all. Because again, I, who, who was the Bengals? Well, one of the teams was going to potentially play the Broncos. Right. That wasn't enough of a hook for me. Right. You know, like it could have been one of the other two teams from the other game too. Uh, and I, to be honest with you, I can't even remember who was in the other playoff. Not that it matters. Yeah. It was, it was Kansas City and Houston. Okay. And I hate both those teams. Okay. In that game, I would probably be hoping for a meteor strike. Sure. So I do that pretty regularly. <laughs> but, uh, your point is well taken because I find, especially as I get older, when I encounter people who let the outcome of sporting events affect their mood, and I was doing this for a little while and I go, what am I doing? Like, these are, these are other grown men doing something which ultimately has no direct impact on my life. So, I need to take whatever enjoyment I can from it. So your description of the Bengals season, what did they finish that year? Like 12 and 4, 11 and 5, something like that? Yeah, they like were that? 11 and 5, I think. Uh, 12 and 4. So they, they had a chance to take the one seed. Had oh they, yeah, I remember had that. They, had they won that game in Denver. Right. Again, AJ McCarron starting. Right. Because Andy Dalton broke his thumb, came to Denver, lost in overtime. I mean, this is a pretty good team. They lost to the Super Bowl champions in their house. In overtime. Yeah, that's a good point. And it came down to With a botch back, snap yeah, yeah. on a basically rookie quarterback's first game, second game. Okay, I get you. But when you see like grown men like mopey for like a week or super like disengaged from their wives or families or whatever, it's like, what are you doing, man? This is sports. Yeah. I had to unfollow someone on Facebook because they were such a bad sports fan mm -hmm. that I'm like, I cannot listen to you bellyache about this anymore. This is an institution that exists for your enjoyment ultimately asks nothing from you and you are so bitter about it that you just have to bloviate all of this vitriol about all of your teams and how they're getting screwed. And I go, you know what? I got to not be that way. Yeah. When my team does well, Hey, great. Congratulations. When it doesn't fine. I'm a pretty diehard sports fan in that. Like I, I care very deeply about my teams mm. and I've, I've been trying to be better about that. I think it's, I think one of the things that makes football great, the 16 game season makes it a little bit harder to disengage. Yeah, it's pretty live be, and die. Because you've got 16 chances right. to be happy or sad. <laughs> right. And in some cases, that's it. And then, you know, for Bengals fans, I would say it, all Bengals fans, this year especially hurt because mm -hmm. of the, 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 com the confluence of all the different scenarios. Like they, they lost in the first round for the fifth year in a row. They lost to the Steelers. They lost at home. 
right? All these things happened and you can't help but feel like some sort of not really responsibility. You didn't have right. anything to do with it, but you know, you've put a lot of time and effort into this team and, and, hmm. and believing in this team. And there's that, there's that sense of, so of, it's almost like a psychic energy that, that you're talking about yeah. uh, in, in a lot of ways, because when you say you put a lot of time and effort time, I get effort. Really? Like, so, so I say that, I say that in the sense that like I, my family and I, for the last five years, we've gone to Cincinnati okay. for one Bengals game okay. each year. So, okay, that, you know, that, that, that counts as effort. That, like, yeah, not, not that I was on the field, like blood, sweat and tears into the team, but you know, we're more than, I'm more than a casual fan. Okay. Right. I'm not just watching them right. because okay. they're on. I'm I going out of my way to find out, find opportunities to follow them in ways that I wouldn't be able to otherwise from Salt Lake City or Denver. Okay, I follow you. What's interesting to me about this conversation is I feel like this is a conversation we could have had at any point when we were in undergrad. But after grad school and after gaining some experience and after doing this both in person and online, I feel like we're just better at it. Sure. And I, I feel like there's there's more understanding. And I don't know if... If anyone's even still listening at this point, right. but hi mom. But the but the point I want to make is I'm not sure if this is a commercial or a total like deterrent from going to grad school in our discipline. You know what I mean? Because right. if you're interested in exploring things with a lot of depth, and as I get older, especially given this wacky political year, just what's happened in terms of the rhetoric of Bernie Sanders versus Hillary Clinton and then Trump versus the clown car of the other GOP people. Mm -hmm. And as we record this, Ted Cruz dropped out of the race today. So did mm -hmm. John Kasich. I read that right before right. we got in. It's going to be Trump on the Republican side. Yeah. It's looking like it's probably going to be Hillary on the other side. Right. But what was so fascinating to me was I liked reading a lot of analysis about both parties and I yeah. don't count myself as an acolyte of either party. I have serious problems with both of them for wildly different reasons. Yep. But I loved digging into what was happening. And it's almost like I'm doing it dispassionately. Do you find yourself doing that? Because I, I tend to read a lot about things that ultimately affect me, but that I have no direct stake in. Yeah, I think parroting what we talked about at the beginning, right? The, right. the idea that, that your job isn't necessarily to reinforce your own worldviews. Your job is is to find out other world views right. to help you understand your world view, right? So so that's not to say that you're reinforcing it, but you're right. always going to have the place that you live in, the place that you stand. And you can only look at the world from your own experiences. And you can't experience everything. So reading right. about things that you're not passionate about, reading about things that you don't have a vested interest in, make you a more informed person. So right. day, And increases when, empathy. Yeah. That to me is a big thing. Like, and that's, that's what this show is all about is increasing empathy. Yeah. I like to learn more about jobs that I would never ever do and talking to people like, how do you do it? How does it make you successful? I mean, I love digging in w with stuff that I know and stuff that I do and sure. getting really wonky and talking shop. Sure. But just, it's like, wow, I had no idea that went into your job. I, I always cite this example, the, the hairdresser, you know, she said people will sit down in my chair and immediately start bashing themselves because they look at themselves in this mirror under yeah. these bright lights. And she goes, look, I've been looking at myself all day. I see, you know, I see where this doesn't fit right. I see where I smudge my makeup, whatever. 
She's like, so you got to move past it. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, that's such a weird job hazard, looking in a mirror all day. All day. And as someone who is extremely self-critical, I go, that would be a major deterrent from doing that job. Sure. I, you, you probably, you, the, I think the point is you never thought about that, right? Exactly. You, you yes. hear people's jobs, job titles and you already make assumptions, whether it's because of how you saw them portrayed in television or because, right. you know, the one time you met someone else that did that, but you don't really know the minutia that goes into right. their day to day. Right. And that's, I think that's what make the, makes the show interesting is everybody's job is more than a title. Like it's, right. it's eight hours or more a day. <laughs> five or more days a week. Yeah. And it's your life. What, like, what is your life? Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. Well, so, I mean, speaking of that, you know, we did, we did our master's program together. And after that I got in and actually started like directly using my degree in a professional sense. Right. And the thesis I wrote, which I'm not going to bore everyone with, but boils down to the fact that any text, any artifact doesn't play to an audience that already exists. It calls a new one into being. Understanding what you're trying to do and what audience you hope to create and trying to minimize uh, any audience that you don't want to create, how does that affect the creation process? That's mm-hmm. very much something that I work on all the time when I'm writing a press release or doing a podcast or whatever. Yeah. What audience do I hope to create? Yeah. And then when I look at past things that I've created, what audience did that actually create? And then what does that say about me? What does that say about the creative process? What does that say about the people who find whatever it is you've created, et cetera, et cetera, right? Sure. You went on, did some additional academia, and now you're working in the finance industry. Right. And I'm curious how this discipline either prepared you or didn't for what you're doing now. Yeah, so great question. And I think this goes back to, to the initial question that your show asks, which is, what about your job is relevant to us, right? We hear the term financial industry and obviously we, we think, right, the, you know, the, the guy wearing the suit carrying the briefcase, <laughs> right? You have a picture of someone in the finance industry and certainly that, that is my industry. Sure. Um, right but, or wrong. Yeah. But the way that our degrees play into the job that I have right now, now is, the finance industry, a lot of people, I don't think want to think about it this way, but the finance industry is a sales industry. Mm. Their job is to sell you something. Okay. I think. Isn't that everyone's job though? So arguably, right? But I think we, we hold financial professionals up on this shelf as being something better than that. Okay. But at the end of the day, they're selling you something. The way that I look at my job, because I'm selling you something, is I need to make sure that what I'm selling you is what you need, right? I, I hope that I'm doing it the right way. Right. I hope that I'm not just selling you something to sell you something. I'm selling you something that you need or that you're going to benefit from. Okay. Um, so that's to, going to have some utility for you. Right. Okay. Right. It's not, it's not ideally, and I'm, I'm pretty transparent. My, my goal is, right. I'll tell my clients, right. I, I want to put myself on the same side of the table as you, right. You and I are, are in this together. So if, if you, gain. If you see gains, I see gains. I'm doing my job. Mm-hmm. If you don't see gains, if you see losses, I also take those losses. I'm, I'm, I'm in this with you. Um, and I think there's a stigma in the industry and rightly so that a lot of folks were in it, not for the client. They were in it for mm. the boat or the ski weekend or the new car or whatever it was. Right. right okay. Because there's a lot of things in this industry that when you sell, you make a lot of money for selling. Okay. So annuities are an example, right? When I sell you an annuity, 
when anybody, you're going to get the call. Somebody's going to try to sell you an annuity. Okay. <laughs> Just know they're going to make 5% on that. Okay. So if they sell you a $100,000 annuity, they just made five grand. They walked out of your house basically with a check for five grand that goes in their pocket. Interesting. Which can be disingenuous, right? Because I don't technically have to disclose that to you. One, that, and that's fine. Yeah, you're right. You don't have to. And there are some real shitbag salesmen out right. there. Do you remember that guy in college who was friends with Elizabeth who, like, his boss told him to sell vacuums to people who couldn't afford them, like explicitly yeah. told them that because they're going to make more money on collections than they are yep. just selling vacuums to honest people who yep. need to clean floors. That's shitty. Right. And that's, you know, that's where unchecked capitalism is not necessarily a, the best thing. But the the argument I would make is what you're describing, I think, has been confused in the culture with people saying, well, that's how the entire finance industry exactly. works. And exactly. so, so what do you do to overcome that? How, like, how do you overcome that stigma? How do you get beyond it? And how do you evolve the dialogue? Yeah. And, and so, so obviously that's what makes the news, right? Is, is, is the shitbag salesman. Like that's how. Right. Like the big short was all about, you know, people buying what real estate uh, or mortgages mm-hmm. and selling them. And we, Junk with mortgages. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So the answer to the question, how school prepared me for this position is my job is, is to get to know you. In most cases, we're not hanging out in your basement, right? Getting to know each other. You're in my office, or maybe I came to you. You know, we met for lunch somewhere, and I've got to I've got to get to know you in a couple of <laughs> sittings. Right. So my job is is really to understand. I think how you operate, how you think, what you fear, what you're worried about, uh, and what you what you want to do. Right? Do you have two young kids that you need to put into college in the next fifteen to eighteen years? That's relevant. Do you have no kids and you have 35 years to retirement and that's your, your time frame? Great. Great. Those two people are going to have very different plans. Yeah. For very obvious reasons. Well, sure. So my job is really to listen to you and your needs and figure out what it is that I have to offer that mm-hmm. best fits those needs. So my pr- perspective is, right? I, I recognize I'm always already a salesman. I have to sell. Good use of academic phrasing. Thank you. Thank you very much. (laughs) Um, But what I want to avoid is selling you anything. right? I I don't want to be a salesman. So theoretically, in my mind, the way that I position my day-to-day when I go out to meet with the client, my job isn't to sell you anything. Mm -hmm. It's to figure out what you need and provide that for you. Mm. I get that that's semantics because I essentially am doing the exact same thing. But I think when right. you use the words a certain way, they, they matter, right? So when we think about salesmen, there's a negative connotation there. It's, yeah. a, it's a pejorative, right? You don't hear salesmen and think, man, I hope my daughter grows up to marry a salesman. <laughs> right. Okay. But, but when you use the, when you use the language differently, I'm doing the exact same thing. And, and genuinely, I, I don't just say this to, to make it sound like I'm, I'm better yeah, than no, a salesman, I... but, but the reality is my job isn't just to sell you something to sell you something. It's to sell you something you need. Okay. And I can't know that unless I know you. Okay. I could sell an annuity to you today. Right. But you don't need an annuity. You would actually be worse off buying an annuity from me today than you would okay. any number of other things. You know, it's funny. I'm struck by this because I think about the value proposition that I put out to potential clients I work with. Mm-hmm. And I'll give you a quick anecdote. I was working with a potential client and they said, I have all these materials that I've created. I have... You know, I have fact sheets, I have templates, et cetera, et cetera. And I need to evaluate how effective they are. 
you know, are they good? Do I need to update them? Do I need to create new ones? Do I need to discard these? Are these ones excellent? Whatever. And I go, okay, that's fine. I'm happy to come in and do a communications audit for you. Mm -hmm. What I need to know is when people encounter these goals or encounter these materials, what do you want them to think or do or feel? How do you want them to leave the experience of getting these materials? Right. What are your institutional goals that will help you in your business as a result of the creation of these materials? And this person said to me, she's like, I, I hadn't really thought of that. That really didn't make sense. And I go, well, you can take all these materials then and set them on fire. Yeah, they don't matter. Like it, if, if, if there, if there's no goal tailored to the, the things that you create, your products, the things that you are selling, Kyle, if you don't have an institutional goal in mind or a big goal, then don't do anything. Yeah. Like don't even call me. If you don't understand where you want your business to be or how you want people to react or understand your business, then don't do anything. Until you know that and until you know how I can be helpful, then let's not do that. What you what I hear you describing to me is people probably have a vague sense of where they want to end up or what their financial or monetary goals are, mm -hmm. right? And so you can say, okay, if these are your goals, and maybe you can help them tailor that a little bit because I, I help people with their communications goals too. Based on what you want to do and based on the situation that you have, this is going to be the best set of materials This or this is going to be the best set of services or products that I can offer you mm -hmm. that will help you achieve these goals. Is that accurate? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what we're both doing is fundamentally salesmanship, but there's an important listening component that I feel like gets swallowed when you talk about it in the abstract. Right. Agreed. I think all too often we just assume salesmen, you go in, I need a thing. Oh, I have a thing. Right. And here it is. And turns out things are very, very different. Right. And one thing isn't right for everyone. So figuring out, and, and I think you're, you're probably in the same boat, right? So with clients, they're going to come in this week. I'm going to help put a strategy in place and we're going to jump in and we're going to, we're going to get the ball rolling. And the reality is I'm going to talk to these people again regularly, but we're also going to, we're going to rebalance her portfolio and we're going to make changes and, and maybe we're going to get into different products somewhere down the road because life happens, right. life changes. And what you needed at 30 <laughs> isn't what you need at 35 or 40 because between 30 and 35, you had two kids. Well, it turns out you're not just saving for retirement now. Yeah. So how does that change the conversation? Literally, right? Change the conversation because we're going to meet. We're going to figure out where things are different. We're going to see where your right. portfolio is, where it's come because the market fluctuates. And we're going to put a new plan in place, all built on that old plan and new information that we have. And you're going to do the same thing, I'm sure, with, with your communication strategies. Oh, yeah. Is, you know, things change. Times change. Clients change. Yeah. Goals change. Yeah, companies change. Yeah, the landscape can shift. And it, it can either shift really quickly or really slowly. Right. And, and you, you adjust your tactics based on that. It's so weird too. Coming out of grad school, do you remember reading Desertoe? Mm -hmm. And I, I think we were in Greg's rhetoric of everyday life together mm -hmm. and we all read Desertoe and no one got it. Like, do you remember that? And that, like that class was pretty long. Yeah. <laughs> Cause the discussion wasn't real good. Yeah. But, uh, the two main things that come out of the work that we read was strategies and tactics. Mm -hmm. Those are the two biggest words I've used in my career. And that is the two foundational principles of PR. Yeah. Like that's, it, it really boils down to that. And everything that, that you do, if you go to any professional conference or 
take any online training or whatever, it is all rooted in the theory that we studied extensively. Mm-hmm. Now, I was a little bit too much of a snot about that early in my career. Sure. Where I'm like, this is just dace or toe. Like, yeah. or, uh. You just put pretty wording on it. Yeah. It's like, I, I, I had this whole, like, <laughs> my boss called it corporate brainwashing, but we had this, like, this training program, like, institutional at the last company I worked at. And I showed up and I'm like, you guys realize you just repurposed simulacra and simulation. Right? Yeah. I'm like, this is just Baudrillard. And the people leading the training were like, who? Yeah. And I go, oh my God, you're like robots. You're like when you go to a foreign country and you get the tour in English yeah. and they have the script memorized, but you ask them a question and they look at you like you just farted. They couldn't answer. They're like, yeah. eh? And so I pointed that out to them. I'm like, yeah, this is, you know, like, this is basically simulacra and simulation. And then with a little bit of Roland Bard semiotics, yeah. like that's what you guys are trying to do here, but you've corporatized it. Yeah. And they go, um, okay. And I go, oh God. Like, here, I'll make this easy for you. Just go watch The Matrix. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, this is, this is essentially The Matrix. That'll, that'll be the easiest way for you to hopefully grasp this. Don't pay attention to all the cool effects. Just listen to the movie. You know what? They could have never applied that to the training they were doing though. It was really, no, like never, like not in a million years. But if, if you've, if you've gone through it and experienced it, everything becomes much easier. And one of the things I always said was, People are like, oh, you got a liberal arts degree? Like, yeah. can you say, would you like fries with that? Right. And I'm like, you know, like, go fist yourself, buddy. Because the thing about it is, it teaches you almost a, a foundational understanding of, of what's at the core of everything that we do. Mm-hmm. And I always said, it's like, I can learn anything else. And you're a testament to this. You just passed two certification programs, right? right. Yeah. That allow you to, I can't even remember. You told me this like yeah. an hour ago and I've already forgotten. So I, yeah, I can supervise the sales of securities and options in the industry now. Right. So you learned that, but what you're describing at the core of your business is, is relationships, understanding people and understanding communication and connection concepts. Yeah. Is that accurate? Yeah. And so I think one of the things that you mentioned that I think is really, really important about the conversation is it's really hard not to feel, I think you use the word snot. I'll use the word snobbish. Yeah. Um, about our degree. Right. And, and one of the things that, that's really hard for a lot of people, I think, to understand about what value a communication degree provides is everybody can talk. They've been doing it their whole lives. Right. I would bet most people feel they're pretty good at it. It's and like that's dr- fine. It's like driving. Yeah. Yeah. Every, or, everyone thinks they're above average. I yeah, think, I think that's everyone. Dave Barry who says that. So you're, we're already behind the eight ball because I'm learning something that everybody already knows how to do without learning anything about it. Yeah. So I have to justify what I did, what I learned, what I do. Right. Because you think you can already do it and you can already do it well. Right. And so it's hard for me sometimes to walk into a room and listen to people talk about communication practices and not have that that hat on that academic hat that says right. I I get fundamentally what you're saying and I can help you implement that. Right. Because a lot of people are working at this as if this is revolutionary. Yeah, that's a good point. This is and and, and and for them it is. They've never they've never heard of Deserto. They don't recognize that strategies and tactics is what they just talked about. They don't they don't they don't understand it. So being able to transition that conversation and 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 add to it as opposed to come in from the top and right right come down from our ivory tower that's the that's all academics talk about the ivory tower 
instead of doing it that way, come in from a different perspective, right? And help shift the conversation. I, again, fundamentally, it's just when we talked about your, your politics, like parking ego and pride mm-hmm. and saying, God damn it, all you're describing is the fractured self and Plato's symposium. Like that's literally all you just spent the last half hour dressing up and describing. Instead of doing that, maybe taking uh, another angle from, from Plato's symposium and amplifying, like mm-hmm. just like, Instead of like treating it like a boxing match, it's like, no, you know what? Let's get on the same team. It, and again, it's like what you described. Let's be on the same side of the table here. Yeah. I agree with you and I'm going to ignore that you don't know like the, the core of what you're talking about. Right. But let's go in and let's amplify a little bit and let's, let's, let's make this the best we can be. And then we all get better as a yeah. result of it. Yeah. So yeah, it's too funny, man. We're, we're already over an hour. So wow. I know it flies, but one last thing I want to talk about, because this was a follow up from geek bowl mm-hmm. and it, it floored me that you actually enjoyed the newsroom. Yeah. The show on HBO. Yeah. Because I found that show just insufferable and sanctimonious. Okay. And I had had a really lot to drink by sure. the time we talked about it in the night. Yes. And so I, f- I left that conversation going like that. That was more adversarial than I wanted it to be. And I wasn't articulating my points very well. Okay. So I just want to ask you without any agenda here, I'm not teeing you up for anything because I honestly don't remember. What was it that you enjoyed about the newsroom? So I really like pretty much everything that Sorkin does. Like I think he's an interesting writer. I think you can knock him for being sanctimonious. I think he is very high on himself. I mm. think he, f- I think he thinks he's the smartest guy in the room. Right. And I think he believes that we need to know he's the smartest guy in the room. So I, I, I don't blame anybody for seeing that in Sorkin's shows. Okay. Because they're clearly there. Well, and, and I'll, I'll clarify something by saying I found that really overt and insufferable in the newsroom. Mm hmm. I did not find him to be as show-offy in something like The Social Network mm-hmm. or Moneyball. Um, so I think it's I think it's the content, right? So The Newsroom is a show about the news. Right. And because of where we live and because of who Sorkin is and because of the network that aired the show, it had to take a stance. It had to be political. Okay. It had to be ideological. Right. Okay. And turns out that's right up his alley and he already thinks he's the smartest guy in the room so let's remind the liberals why we're so great and educate the dumb conservatives as to why they don't get it okay so a lot of that comes out in the show i i, I get that okay and and probably the worst part about the show is the attempt to straddle those lines so the main the main newscaster is he has to espouse progressive opinions because it's the news and the news is always moving forward okay but he is a staunchly conservative lawyer ex-lawyer okay i agree with you in that the content of the news is frequently read as liberal or progressive right but the institutional or the institution of the news is extraordinarily conservative Originally, yes. And and I would say still, because if you look at the news, it, any of the corporate, any, any of the mainstream news outlets are owned by multinational conglomerates. Sure. Which is an extremely conservative uh, position to be in. 
I would say that the news has a progressive liberal bent, but with an extreme conservative institution behind it. So there's there's never going to be very overtly liberal news. It's it's always sure. going to be to, I guess, reify the system. Sure, I I don't think I can disagree with that. Right, I think because just w- the way that that and media I, is composed, it 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 can't go one go that way. Right, and and I had a I had a bigger point that I wanted to tie that to, and I can't remember what it was. You say the character of Will McAvoy mm-hmm. was conservative. I I don't think Sorkin did a good job of writing him as conservative. So he, he I, I thought the sock was off the puppet at that he, point. Man. He only made him conservative. I believe he only made him conservative to appeal to both sets of viewers. Do you think he was successful in that? No, not at all. Okay, well, good. Because okay, it was, fine. Because good. It was the big. That's why that to me was the worst part of the show because. He, and they tried to justify why it was that he came from the right, but that he could be so leftist. Okay. And, and this goes back to my argument from before. And right? like he hates the Tea Party and stuff, which is right. fine. Like most rational, normal thinking people hate the Tea Party. Right. Okay. Keep going. Sorry. So it goes back to my point of the right is static and everything else is left or progressive. Okay. So Will McAvoy as, as the purveyor of news, has to be by default more progressive, not even necessarily more liberal, although that's also a byproduct. He has to be more progressive because the news is ever changing. We're ever moving in a direction. Okay. We don't know what direction. We just know it's a direction. So it has to be more left leaning than right, which is one of the reasons Fox news feels so biased is because they are, are static. They're, they're just reinforcing the positions they already have Okay. where most of the rest of the news keeps moving forward the thing that i liked about the newsroom is sorkin i think does a really good job of taking environments that you don't usually get to see you know of but you don't usually get to see so kind of like the, sh- the show you do right we, yeah, yeah, we, yeah we know what a newsroom looks like yeah so we know what a, a um saturday night live soundstage looks like or what the white house like we have an idea of what we think that is right we can picture that but we don't really know what happens on the end. Sure. And not by any means to say that Sorkin is the end all be all about how these things run or function, but he does a really good job of, of taking those things we know and then building the nuance. Yeah. Putting like, in the mirrors and the, in the hairdresser's shop, right? Right. Building this universe that says that, that makes sense and, and that these are people and they're not just news anchors. They're not just writers. They're not just reporters. Right. So what you're arguing for or, or what you're, telling me and that I agree with you on is that Sorkin is pretty good at the texture mm-hmm. of of a universe. Uh the West Wing is a thoroughly enjoyable show. Mm-hmm. Studio 60 was probably even more sanctimonious than the newsroom. Sure. But something I enjoyed quite a bit. It was it was a lot of fun for its time. Sports Night I never got on board with. I I watched Sports Night before I knew much about media. It was just something that I knew of. Right. And really enjoyed it. And okay. so when it showed up on Netflix, I went back to watch it and I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't do it. I, I don't know, I don't know what it was about the 20 years it had been since I watched it originally right. or if I had just seen better writing since then, yeah, but, okay. but something about sports night just didn't hit the mark. But that was also early, early in right. his career. And I mean, the, the thing about Sorkin also is the scenes and the dialogue move very fast, yes. which, one of the things that we agreed on, and this is going to be kind of a strange comparison, was we both love Jeopardy mm-hmm. because there's a high volume of questions. Yeah. I can handle a high 
level of dialogue. Yeah. Like I can handle a lot of words all at once. And I love when people can, can fire off a lot of words like that. It's why I like Patton Oswalt's comedy so much because it's so dense. Yeah. Chris Hardwick's kind of the same way in the way he talks about things. I can handle that. So I'm with you so far. So keep going. So beyond that, I felt like the show did a really good job of pacing the characters and the story. One of the knocks I think the newsroom got was that it took advantage of, and probably from the perspective of an agenda, news that had already happened. Right. We were basically watching a show 15 months in the past, in the future, however you want to look at it. Yeah. So, because we were talking about... Well, like the second episode is the is the BP Deepwater Horizon mm-hmm. thing, right? And so, you know, that was what like 2010 that happened. I want to say it was like it was a year and a half to two years removed. Yeah, a exa- lot of storylines exactly. were were, and they were they were real stories for the most part. And they they changed details and changed. You right. know, I don't think it was necessarily BP, but so I so think they changed a lot of those details. Uh, yeah, I can't remember if if they meant if they name dropped BP or not. This is where I start to differ with you because, A, I didn't care about the interpersonal stories between the characters. I didn't buy them. I didn't think he wrote women worth a damn on that show. And he never has. No, No, he never has. And secondly, the way he covered the news stories, I found just incredibly annoying. I don't think he covered them with new nuance. It felt like someone, and I, I think I said this to you that night at Geek Bowl, it felt like someone angrily reading HuffPost articles to me from two years ago. Maybe. And that, like the whole show, I felt like someone was really pissed off about various news events that had already happened long in the past. And I'm like, I got nothing new from the way the newsroom put it out there. So I, I, I looked at it and I, and I think if you looked at the newsroom as just rehashing old news, it probably, it probably disenchanted you from the show. And I think if you look at it from the perspective that these news events are happening in their world, now, how would you respond to that? I think that changes the perspective because I think if you get, mm. I, cause I've heard that argument a lot. I don't think, right. You're not the yeah, first no, person to say, of course not. you know, yeah, that's not a unique thought a, to me. Did a, did a shitty job of rehashing old news. But right. I think if you look at it from the perspective of these people were learning about these events in real time, these aren't two year old news stories. That was interesting to me. So going back mm-hmm. and think, so I just, uh, thank you, Time Hop. There's my, there's my <laughs> shout out to Time Hop. They just added these retro videos and whatever, one or two or three days ago was the, was the five year anniversary that, that Bin Laden was killed. Okay. And I, I remember like coincidentally, we had gotten rid of all of our cable that week. So I had no TV to like turn on the news to see this press. Oh yeah. Okay. The, the announcement. So we were just sitting around our computers. I was on the laptop and Jen, and Jen was on her computer just like waiting with that blank screen of the podium for the, the president to walk yeah. down and give his, give his announcement. Like I remember, I remember what I was doing. And so the newsroom to me was fun because it took that moment Right. And there are a number of moments you can think of in your life where you know exactly what you were doing when something sure. happened. Um, and kind of transports you back to that moment. So if, right, if you were in the news media, the BP oil spill was relevant, right? This, the, the season two story arc is about some sort of covert operation that went wrong. Okay. And so we can think about it. I think this was was pre Benghazi, but we can think of it like within these terms, like if you were in the news media, you would know where you, what you were doing when these events happened and they would have been meaningful to you and whatever was happening in your personal life, whatever was happening between you and, and your 
crush or your boyfriend or your spouse or whoever. Or your coworker, yeah. Was, or your coworker or your boss or whoever. It was completely irrelevant because hmm. in that moment, the news mattered. And another thing that I think was fun about the show is, and I don't know that he did this on purpose, but to me, right, the news doesn't matter. Hmm. The newsroom came out in a time when the, the news matters as little as it ever has in terms of like the nightly news broadcast. Okay. Because most of us who are watching that show aren't watching a nightly news broadcast. We're getting our news from Twitter and we're getting our news the next morning on the internet or right. We're not watching. We're not sitting down to watch Will McAvoy or whoever. Right. Okay. Adele Arakawa doesn't do it for me like she did 15 years ago. Okay. Right. Do you remember when she came to town and they had billboards all over the place? Like news anchors mattered 15 years ago. And I, I would argue that they still do. I don't know that they do though. No, because as far as individual sources, TV news is still, it might just be a plurality now, but it is where the majority, it is the largest source of news that most of, like, more Americans get their news from TV news than they do from any other source. Sure. Still. And again, that might be a plurality. So we might be talking about less than 50%, but that's still the biggest chunk of the pie. And I would argue that matters. Like, regardless of whether or not it, it matters as much as it did in the past, which sure. it may not, sure. it still matters. And I, I have a show coming up that really amplifies this point. So not to tease future episodes, but Nicely done. <laughs> I believe me unintentional. The other point I want to make is basically what you're describing is historical fiction. Sure. I mean, that that's essentially what this boils down to. But it's historical fiction from two years prior where I go, I'm not ready for for historical fiction from two years ago. Yeah. So and I, and, and I, I may be looking at this the wrong way. Granted, we could argue all day about what the right or wrong way is. Right. Granted, you enjoyed it. I did not. So I maybe no you problem. did it right. I had no problem with the fact that the news stories were real. What I will say is if you if you keep watching the show, they got away from – that concept. Okay. They didn't, they didn't completely abandon it, but it, it became less pressing to directly follow real life events. Although they do follow, I think they follow the Romney campaign. Okay. That may be the first season. I never, I never had any issue with the, the content of the news because to me, it wasn't about the news itself. Okay. Actually, now that I think of it, maybe one of the episodes was about Obama announcing that we got Bin Laden. Bin Laden. Hmm. That may have been. Like, they're at a dinner party and and they get a call and it's like I need everybody in the office and they're like we're all we're all drunk and we all just ate right. pod brownies. Like what do you want us to do? Okay. And they were like, no, really, get in the office. Anyway, what you're describing sounds like a terrible episode of Three's Company. No, to me, like you know what I mean. Like, I listen to yourself describe I that. I get it. And so I was already out by the time that happened. Sure. But hearing you describe that, I'm like, God, like, so Mr. Roper calls them and they're all high and, uh oh, you got to come back and blah, blah. And you go, God, that sounds like terrible farce. Well, it, I mean, I'm not going to say the show was amazing, but it was fun to watch. Okay. Okay. I'll and grant I, you I've that. never, I would never, I never did and I never will argue that it's one of the best shows I've okay. ever seen. Okay. But it was fun. I like the way Sorkin tells his stories. I think it did a good job at what it tried to do. Okay. Which was be very clearly leftist in describing what a newsroom looks like. Like they took obvious shots at the right that were not necessary, but were fun for the purpose of the show. Okay. Here's where I take issue with that. It's the same thing as the NFL to me where 
Sorkin positions Will McAvoy as this guy on the right. Mm -hmm. And then it's basically this Trojan horse so he can come in and take pot shots. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is. A hundred percent. You're right. Fine. Okay. The NFL talks endlessly about how much they care about their players and all of their behavior indicates otherwise. So it's the, it's what I'm talking about is a difference in degree, not in kind. Sure. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so that's where I, I also sort of lost the thread that and everyone loves that whole first episode monologue that he does where he rips into that poor college girl. Yeah. I hate that with the power of a thousand sons because it is, it is regressive horseshit. When he talks about this country sucks now and you have a terrible generation. So first of all, he's picking on the generation, which is right. something that I have a real problem with. Right. And secondly, he's like, you know, sure it used to be a great country. And it's like, oh, fuck you, you baby boomer bastard. Like that, that to me is just crap, dude. He's like, we used to fight for causes that mean something. It's like, oh, you mean like now when we're fighting for marriage equality and transgender rights? And uh, Black Lives Matter and things like that. That's all just frivolous to you. And we should go back to when, uh, you know, the cops were the cops were tasing people outside the Democratic National Convention in 1968. Like, give me a break, man. That, that to me just that was that was the old man yells at cloud moment for me sure. in that show. Yeah. And when people share that people from my generation share that like you realize this is a boomer ranting about you, yeah. right? No, that's not OK to me. And and to me, it was just high levels of hackery. I So I love the monologue, and I don't disagree with anything you've said. <laughs> okay. So I love it. How, how are those not in opposition? So so I don't, I don't love that that's his point, but the reality was that was Will McAvoy's perspective. Like, and that set the stage for the show to make sense from Will McAvoy's perspective. Whether or not he was a hagnide baby boomer, we, we don't know. Okay. Right. We agree that he probably was, but that probably wasn't Sorkin's intention. He probably thought he was being poignant. <laughs> yeah, which to me makes it all the worse. But because there's a lack of self-awareness there, man. But is there? Yes. Yes, because clearly, like, ugh. to me, that that was that was fully just Aaron Sorkin using Will McAvoy as his own mouthpiece. It absolutely was. And so, so what are we arguing about then? Like, what? I don't, I don't, I, I don't so get what your position I is. This, I was ready to watch the rest of the show because of that monologue. Okay. The, the thing I will grant is that Jeff Daniels does a great job delivering it. Yeah. As an actor's performance, it's exquisite. He's great the whole, to- pretty much the whole time through, but yeah. Yeah. He's, and he's a terrific actor. Yeah. I mean, from everything from that in this show that I don't like, I recognize that he's very good in it. He's great as Harry Dunn in Dumb and Dumber. Mm-hmm. Um, the guy, I think, is probably a severely underrated actor. And not to turn this into a Bill Simmons conversation, oh. but but it's one of those things when you think of great actors, Jeff Daniels probably isn't like the first one that pops in your head. Yeah. But then you think about it and you go, have I ever not liked him in something? Right. And you go, no, I've never not liked him in something. So, okay. Well, that <laughs> that, that helps me. I don't know what it am I we're we're talking about a show that's no longer on the air right. but it's more sort of an abstraction that's and it's way better than most people they're all talking about shows that are on the air <laughs> at least we're new and different <laughs> right we're yeah. we're like the anti-hipster we're talking about things after they were cool <laughs> yeah oh you like that back then well, it's not cool now so right. it's cool again but uh you know what I think we got to ra- holy hell yeah we got to wrap up so um 
This is normally where I do plugs. Do you want to plug anything? I have nothing. I have nothing to plug. What about your Twitter account? <laughs> if you want to follow me, no, it's I'm at Stadium Seating. Okay. S T eight zero U M S E A T I N G. Okay. I'll I'll put that on the blog because I lately I've been using Twitter only for weird Twitter. Nice. Um, just because I love weird Twitter so much, I I retweeted something today, just completely out of context. That said. Uh, all right, just put fucking Skittles in the crust already. Nice. I'm in. <laughs> yeah, I and don't it's know. It's already a pizza commercial. I'm sure they're just waiting <laughs> to roll it out. And the funny thing is, like, you immediately went to pizza and so did I. Yeah. But then I'm like, that could be, that could be anything, really. That could be bread. That could be, so it's like out of context, but you know, yeah, like, it, it means something. You're joining it midstream, yeah. which makes it all the funnier to me. I think to be fair to anybody who was like, I'm definitely taking that guy's Twitter handle and, and writing it down. Uh, I do very little original tweets. I usually retweet things that I think are funny, yeah. interesting, different than I would have thought. Right. Again, it's all about the conversation. Right. Obviously it tends to be more left leaning because it's progressive, but I, and then I'll just go on like sports rants. Right. I, I would say you're a good curator of your Twitter feed. You, okay. You're, you're not a. You're not an originalist, but but the curation of what you do, uh, it's stuff that I find amusing or interesting or compelling in some way. So. You know, you know who I am by by what comes out of my exactly, yeah. So, all right, well, let's wrap up, Kyle. Thanks for sitting down, and uh, I've always just wanted to to sit down and do this and record one of them, yeah, just so we have it, yeah, you know, just just for grins because we're doing these for free all the time anyway, right? And it's one of those things where I don't know. What utility someone else is going to get out of it? This is again going back to my thesis, but it helps me sort of re-understand myself sure. and my show. Yeah, I, I had a great time. Obviously, anytime we get a chance to to talk, I can talk. We can talk for days. So yeah, it's fun opportunity it, to, to take advantage of your yeah. your forum. <laughs> and if we wanted to talk about TV, we'd be here a month of Sundays. So all right, man. Well, continued success to you. We'll uh, we'll talk soon. Thanks, man. That'll do it for episode 94. Big thanks to Kyle Simmons for sitting down with me and going an hour 20. I had a lot of fun. I hope he did too, and I hope you did listening to it. Follow him on Twitter, Stadium Seating, S-T-8-0-U-M-S-E-A-T-I-N-G. Kind of a weird Twitter handle. The point is you should follow him. He's got a very well-curated Twitter feed with tons of interesting stuff that I wouldn't have necessarily found on my own. More plugs. Our sponsor is 4Degrees, number 4, D-E-G-R-E. Es, you're gearing up for campaign season, and Four Degrees is your best bet for getting your message in front of the people who need to see it. No matter what platform you're using, whether it's Facebook, whether it's Snapchat, whether you're just doing email campaigns, they will do it for you. They will do it for you effectively, efficiently, and at a great cost. So, the number four, D-E-G-R-E dot E-S. The John of All Trades podcast is a production of Deft Communications. Check out Deft on the web at D-E-F-T-C-O-M dot U-S. And we are on the social networks. The username is J-O-A-T-Pod. So Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, and Pinterest. All four great ways to stay up to date on the John of All Trades podcast. Facebook, possibly most important because it's the only place you will find each week's episode preview. So you get a sense for what episode is coming next. That's only on Facebook. No new episode next week. I'm out of town the next two weeks, but we'll be back in two weeks with a great guest. I promise you that. This one is going to be big. I'd argue big. So we will see you back here in two weeks. And until then, say goodnight, Tracy. That's good, Johnny.